I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal innovation and legal technology. Today's episode, I have a conversation with Professor Bill Henderson. He's the Stephen F. Burns Chair on the Legal Profession at the Indiana University School of Law. If there was some kind of org chart for top thinkers in legal innovation, for my money, today's guest would be very high up on that chart. It's Professor Bill Henderson. He's the Stephen F. Burns Chair on the Legal Profession at the Indiana University School of Law. He's also the moving force behind Legal Evolution, which is an online publication that focuses on changes in the legal industry and has a stated mission of providing lawyers, legal educators, and allied professionals with high-quality information to solve very difficult industry-specific problems. It's lucky for us that Bill ultimately decided to go to law school because it wasn't always that way. In fact, he once told his soon-to-be wife that, you're marrying a firefighter, that's all I'll ever be, and I'm never going to finish college. And that was almost true. Bill actually did drop out of college and became a firefighter for many, many years before he got the legal bug. As we will hear, Bill liked being a firefighter and found the job incredibly rewarding, but it was only because he was a firefighter that he ended up going to law school. In the early 90s, during union negotiations, Bill's union rep asked him to tag along and take notes. That's when the legal bug bit him. Foreshadowing his career as a professor, not only did Bill take notes during those union negotiations, he also began in-depth research into prior collective bargaining agreements and into Ohio law so that he and his union team could strike a better bargain. In the end, Bill moved on from note-taker to union vice president, and eventually he took over as lead negotiator. It was because of all these union negotiations that Bill decided to go to law school. And, as we will hear, after a memorable interview with the dean, he was accepted into the University of Chicago Law School. Bill's work as a firefighter and being a union representative stuck with him, and you can see this influence in his research and writing. Since entering academia, Bill has done a ton of research and writing on the state of legal services in general, but more specifically on how legal innovation can improve it. In a nutshell, Bill's research has figured out that more and more legal work is focused on business and commercial law, and a sizable chunk of that work comes from very, very large companies. As Professor Henderson will explain, almost 50 years ago, legal work was pretty much 50-50 between what Bill calls people law and commercial law. Now that division is 75-25 in favor of commercial law, which is causing an access to justice issue. There is a significant need for legal services related to people law, but it's just too expensive or that help just doesn't exist. However, Professor Henderson points out there are things we can do to address this, including the use of better project management, the use of allied professionals, and leveraging technology. But at some level, all of us in the legal industry need to make a decision to make strides towards those goals. But before we get there, let's start from the beginning and find out why Professor Henderson didn't think he was ever going to finish college, let alone be a well-respected law professor. 83, 84, on the cover of Newsweek is this concept of yuppies, and I did not want to be a Reagan revolutionary. It wasn't at the London School of Economics to pad my resume. I wanted to solve the world's most serious problems. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, the way to kind of bond yourself against joining the Reagan revolution is quick college because no corporation is going to hire somebody who can't even quit college. And so uh, I think I read too much uh, Eric Hoffer, you know, a kind of blue collar intellectual. And I went back to the United States and just did some blue collar work for, well, for several years. Well, specifically blue collar work. You were a firefighter. I think yeah. that's another thing many people don't know. And it's ultimately leads to your interest in the law. Yeah, because I was negotiating contracts as a union president, International Association of, of Firefighters, or IAFF local, and I uh, was involved in a few rounds of contract negotiations and grievances, et cetera, et cetera. And it was those bastard management attorneys that, uh, <laughs> that got, me, got me back in the game. You start as a note taker, right? Yeah. The head of your union brings you down. Is it your young kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I was probably 26 when I started. 
And they said, you want to take notes during the contract negotiations? I said, sure. And so you're paying attention and then retirements and disabilities and, and they push you into a position of leadership because you've got the most experience. But they give you more and more responsibility and your inner professor started to come out. Like it, it foretold ultimately where we're, we're sitting here today at Indiana University is you started to go back and actually read historic union documents and the, the agreements and that's, you got yeah, really into it. Yeah, that's true. That once I was the union president, we were preparing for wage negotiations you know, and I'd hear from the older guys like, oh, we got screwed, this and that here. I went back into our archives and I was reading all our uh, our, our prior contracts. And, the, and, the, and we had gone to under Ohio under the uh, it's 4117 is the revised <laughs> statutory code uh, for the collective bargaining in Ohio for public employees. And, and there's fact finding. So you go to fact finding if you, if you come to an impasse because there's no right to strike. And so uh, the good thing about 4117 is, is you go to fact finding and if the fact finder says something you don't like, you can go to a binding interest arbitration. So it's not if you're going to get a pay raise, but how much. And so it was a favorable law for public employees. But you go back and you read, you know, three or four iterations of fact finding and binding arbitration and you could kind of understand the other side's playbook. Do you truly attribute that experience to your desire to want to go to law school? Yes, I, uh, there's no doubt about it because I would stay up until four in the morning at the firehouse working on briefs and data sets in preparation for collective bargaining. I would, I would do it on my off days for no pay. And I mean, it was an unpaid job. And so uh, I began to realize, well, this is something that, uh, that A, I'm good at and B, I'm passionate about here. Maybe this should be my job as opposed to the firefighting, which I enjoyed, but it starts to get a little bit, uh, you know, repetitive. And, you know, the world was changing a lot in the 1990s. I mean, the internet was coming into being. There was a lot that was going on in the world. And, you know, I was going to be a bystander. I was just going to be, without a college degree, I couldn't get into the game. So Speaking of college degree, so what's happening? When do you decide to go back? Is this night school or how do you get your degree finished if you're a firefighter? Well, firefighters have a one day on two day off schedule. So it's one 24 hour shift followed by 48 hours. And then you get Kelly days and vacation days, and, and you can store up your overtime into comp days. And so uh, I re-enrolled at Case Western Reserve, which was about 20 minutes away. I had to go back and talk to the associate dean who I told I was dropping out. I went back and had a conversation with Dean Lang, and he was uh, gave me a little bit of my comeuppance uh, here because he re- recalled me dropping out 13 years earlier. But, you know, I enrolled. And then, uh, you know, I took comp time away from the fire station, I I almost never missed any classes my senior year of university. And ultimately, you go to University of Chicago, and your background as a firefighter helps you get in. You have to to go for an interview, right? Yeah. And true true or false, you told the dean, he asked about how hard it was to be a fireman. True or false, you told him, statistically, it's easier for me to get into this law school than for me to become a firefighter. That's true. There There was 200 people... That signed up for the Lynchhurst uh, Fire Department entrance exam, and two of us got hired. <laughs> so that's a one percent shot. And you know, Chicago back in the day was maybe I don't know a twenty percent shot here. And Dean Badger just loved that answer, so I got in. As I understand it, going into law school, you still planned on maybe doing labor-related law when I you got out. I thought about it. I mean, that's a really good question. I still have a union card in my back uh, pocket. I'm ideologically pro union and, and just how I approach, you know, uh, life. That said, there's just huge structural impediments that, that keep the labor movement from being successful, including the fact that the sons and daughters of, of labor folks go on to university and they have a chance to go into consulting or high finance. There's a kind of a, a endemic brain drain 
to the labor uh, you know, movement. I knew how this historical thing was going to end here. I, I regret it. I wish we were more like Western Europe, but we're not. And so at what point do you start to think legal innovation, changing the way the practice of law is done, yeah. be it technology or just yeah. different ways of doing things? Yeah. When does this start to become of interest to you? First of all, when I was at University of Chicago Law School, I was around the most brilliant people I'd ever been around in my life here. And they were 10 years younger than me for the most part. But there was one thing that struck me that I, I thought was a little irrational about my peers' behavior. And that's this fixation with trying to go to the most elite firm here. Most of us didn't know the list of the, the top firms in the world before we started law school. But then we became fixated, not getting a job with one of these great firms, but the most elite one. And I really thought that uh, my peers' kind of intentions span a bit hijacked by these prestige rankings. They just wanted to do something that would impress other people. I thought, well, that's just a terrible way to kind of plan your life. But I was older, and so I had that kind of detachment. And this is where being a firefighter makes a difference. I'll just tell you one quick story. Is uh, I'm 11 weeks into my law school experience. We're on quarters at Chicago. I come home to Cleveland to go for the break. Here's I'm still I'm commuting between Cleveland and Chicago every week. And I'm burning down my comp time in the fire department, still on their health and insurance. I get invited to all these Christmas parties because uh, these big firms all find out who from elite schools is from Cleveland, and then they invite you to Christmas parties. So I went to six Christmas parties, and I got six job offers from the biggest firms in the, in Cleveland. And I thought to myself, this is crazy. If I had gone to Cleveland State, nobody would want to hire me. But here, I'm confused after 11 weeks at University of Chicago, not even off the payroll at the fire department, and I'm getting jobs that are doubling my pay. And I thought, you know, th there's really something socially constructed and, and nonsensical about this world I'm about to enter. And so anyway, that led me to start to create a course at Indiana on lawyers, law firms as businesses, because I felt like if, if, if young people had access to better information, I thought it was an inf information deficit problem, they would make better career decisions, kind of pull back and understand the legal market before you commit yourself to a career path. And I taught that course for a couple of years at Indiana. That led me to you know, build my tenure file from that empirical work. And ultimately, it led to this startup that I uh, created with some others called Lawyer Metrics. After I got tenure, I created this company called Lawyer Metrics with some others. We ran it for six years, ultimately sold it. It was the hardest, best experience, the hardest experience I've ever had in my life. What made it hard? You're selling innovation to the legal industry. <laughs> Dude, I mean, there's nothing harder than that. Yeah. And, uh, and and you're having to sell and you're having to create products and you're having to live within a budget, as our, as our controller used to tell me. Bill, cash is the best teacher. Cash is the best teacher. And I totally believe that. And so we sold the company, the hardest, best thing that I ever uh, did here, but not something I really wanted to do again. And so that's when I stumbled upon the diffusion theory to solve our sales cycle problem. And so this is the idea of the bell curve of innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards that's often viewed as, as the invention of Silicon Valley, but it's not. It's actually comes from academic literature on how innovation uh, diffuses. And so I said the most important thing I can do as an academic is bring diffusion theory into the legal industry because there's, there's huge amounts of innovation uh, that need to be onboarded. And if the players in the legal industry better understood diffusion theory, you could de-risk the innovation process. And what year is this that you start to think about uh, this? Well, we sold the company in the end of 2015. I left it permanently in 2000. In 16, and so I started Legal Evolution in May of 2017. So, and I knew I wanted to do it when I left here. I was just like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to create this online publication, and it's going to focus on applying diffusion theory to the legal industry. 
And to your point about when you started here at Indiana, you you wanted to teach business concepts. To you know, twenty years later, you have a book on your desk: Ten Essential Principles of Entrepreneurship. <laughs> Michael Maurer, the the I'm at the Maurer School of. This is a book that Mickey wrote, and I'm actually teaching a class with Mickey. On, uh, on lawyer business executives. And, and I, I'm actually a lawyer who was a business executive. So me and Mickey, I, I get to teach a course with Mickey Maurer, the founder or the, uh, the name person for the law school. Over the course of preparing for this podcast, I've read almost all your articles. I think I can synthesize at a very high level a thesis that runs throughout most of your writing. But I want to define some, con- I want to have you define some concepts sure. first before we get there. So interestingly, you talk about people law. As I hear you speak today, I, I see where this is coming from. I, I yeah. see why you're so interested, but define people law. So people law is my term for, it's providing legal services to people, not to businesses. And so uh, if somebody has a pulse and they've got a legal problem, uh, you know, that's people law, you know. Criminal law, d- uh, criminal domestic law, law. Criminal law, personal injury, uh, domestic law, all kinds of real estate conveyance, housing, you know, debt collection. You know, you know, social security, disability, just the things that old age, health, estate planning, all that kind of stuff here. The things that follow the life cycle of of everybody. Segway into your next concept, the way of delivering legal services to clients. You've got one to many and one to one. Distinguish those. So uh, you go to law school and the advantage of it, we've got this coherent model of, oh, you got a client here and you're going to consult with them. Maybe you'll help them write a contract, buy a business, sell a business, or take them to court to vindicate some sort of a claim here. The idea is that you're doing one-to-one consulting with your own client. That's difficult because lawyers' time is very expensive and some of the problems you have are going to be difficult. So it's going to be very, very expensive to solve a problem when somebody who's charging three, four, five hundred dollars an hour or a thousand dollars an hour is doing a bespoke solution to you. So uh, it's coherent, but the market needs something besides one-to-one consultative legal services because it's so freaking expensive to solve a legal problem doing one-to-one consultative legal services. So one-to-many is the idea of how do you scale legal expertise? And you do it by combining law with data, process, technology, design principles, and business, and you try and scale it by doing the work once and kind of selling that uh, that work product in different variations to many people. LegalZoom is a great example of that. And then sitting on top of the legal industry, you've got a concept you write about a lot, the L2L market, lawyer-to-lawyer market. What is that? So I, I want to just preface this, make it very clear where these ideas of people law and kind of the L2L come from. There's a, a seminal study that was done about, uh, oh, almost a half a century ago called the Chicago Lawyers One Study that basically said, if you want to understand the structure of the legal profession, identify who the lawyer's clients are. And half of the legal world was serving people or people law. Half of the world was serving organizational clients, like they had you know, bi- you know know businesses. They replicated that study in the Chicago Lawyers Two about 20 years later and basically found out that organizational clients were growing very rapidly. They were more becoming more prestigious. They were making more money. And there was real structural problems taking place in the kind of the the personal services market. And the census data has this kind of class of customer breakdown for legal services that tracks this. And so it's allowed me to follow this two hemispheres theory of practice that comes from the Chicago lawyers one and two and just carry that forward into all my analysis. A lot of the stuff on legal evolution is either on the people law or what I call lawyer to lawyer, which lawyer to lawyer is organizational clients. It's a lawyer interfacing with some general counsel or in-house lawyer, and they're solving some businesses, you know, uh, legal problems. 
while we're on the topic of that Chicago study, we should point out that you just wrote an article, I think two articles ago about this. It goes more in depth. But as I understand it, the Chicago study basically was 50-50 when it first came out. Yeah, people doing, 1975. That was the people, year it was drawn. Half the attorneys, using round numbers, were yeah. doing the people law. The other half were doing business-related stuff. And they had very little in common here. So the, the Catholics and the Jews were doing people law, and they went to different, they went to Loyola and DePaul, and the type two Protestants who went to Chicago, Northwestern, and Harvard were serving the corporations. And there was very few ethnic, or racial, or gender diversity in 1975. That changed when they replicated the study. But. Which turned out to be 75 25, 25 people law. Well, that's where it's at today. It's been shifting now from, it started with over 50% and now it's down to about a quarter. And so, uh, you know, my law students don't realize it, but when you come to law school, you want to help make the world a better place and vindicate justice. Well, most of the work is really doing uh, legal work for businesses. Yeah. I mean, it's a matter of just the, describing the legal economy. Well, and not only that, you, you pointed out in the article too is if you break down revenue and where this the business side of law is coming from, the vast majority of revenue is coming from legal work from the biggest company. So yeah, just about, a, I think, one-sixth or, or one-eighth legal evolution as the precise uh, breakdown. It's just 500 companies. And so just like, and their typical legal budget is, is tens of millions of dollars here. So you've got, you know, 500 or 1,000 clients that comprise almost a quarter of the market. When we come back in just a few minutes, Professor Henderson explains how all players in the legal ecosystem share some blame for access to justice issues and the decrease in lawyers practicing people law. He also offers some ideas about how all the players can pitch in and begin to fix the problem. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. All right, we'll get back to my conversation with Professor Bill Henderson in just a second. But before I do, I want to let you know if you go to tlpodcast.com, you'll find a dedicated episode page for this episode and all other episodes. And today's conversation with Professor Henderson is an excellent reason to visit tlpodcast.com. We'll post links to all the articles that he's written that we talk about today and some of the other resources discussed. This is the theme that I see running throughout your study and your research and your articles is, obviously, as we already talked about, people are suffering the most. People just can't afford legal work, and there's fewer lawyers doing this work anyway. So we got a problem there, and we got to solve. It's hard it. to make a living doing that work. There are things we can do to address this. You know, use better use of project management, use of allied professionals, use of tech. But at some level, not enough strides are being made in that direction, and everybody at all levels of the legal ecosystem are to blame, from schools to courts to to, to lawyers in private practice. Well, yeah, we've got plenty to go around here in terms of everybody could do better. And it's not because they don't want to. Some of it could be. You know, there's protectivism, uh, there's parochialism. 
But a lot of it I gathered, and I kept seeing this consistent theme. And it's funny because uh, I just had Casey Flaherty in the podcast a couple episodes ago, and he said the same thing. A lot of this is lack of time stemming from prioritization because you're trying to do whatever your day job is, be it as a law professor preparing for your classes or you're a judge, you know, trying to get your docket clear. Yeah, where everybody is time starved. There's no doubt about it. That said, who are the ultimate regulators? The ultimate regulators are the, are the judges that set these rules here. The problem is, is that our regulators have got a mindset of that they're jurists and part-time administrators. And it's just like, we need to create some different structures that will at least allow some innovators to come in and take the risk of saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Only do this. And they're going to underwrite, you know, a business proposition that has a chance of being successful. When everybody's too distracted to do it right here, ordinarily some entrepreneur comes in here and they seize the opportunity by having a focused solution. It's difficult for new entrants to basically have the regulatory runway to create a better mousetrap. It's basically lawyers that, that consistently underfund these innovations. Let's go back to the courts, though, because you raise an interesting point there, that courts are uniquely positioned to address yeah. this. They're not the obvious. We've all got to come in this together. But they may not be paying attention to it because they're the ones that the consumers of people law. They're in front of the judges every day. And what, 75% are probably unrepresented? Yeah, 75% of cases in state court have at least one several represented litigant. Your point is that courts are uniquely positioned to address this, yeah. and they have the regulatory power. Yeah, the some inherent authority it. doctrine, there's a presumption it's in most state common law is that the regulation of the legal profession is uniquely falls to the purview of the courts. And that inherent power was originally used to implement unauthorized practice of, of law. It was laid down about 100 years ago for protectionist uh, reasons. And Ben Barton has done a nice job of kind of documenting the, the use of the inherent authority uh, doctrine to you know, basically erect barriers to entry. You know, judges that are former lawyers uh, being sympathetic to lawyers. So basically told legislatures, don't be changing the uh, the terms of how you get into the uh, profession here. We regulate the legal profession. And, and so that's been pretty much settled law for 100 years that, that the legislatures can't be re-regulating the legal profession that falls to the purview of the courts. So let's say I'm a Monroe County judge and you're, you know, we're, we're having a beer. And I ask you, what's something I can do to start moving the needle in the right direction? What would you tell me? Well, you know, there's these kind of special justice courts. I mean, I, you talked about Monroe County. I know it fairly uh, well. Which we should point out it's the county that... County where, where Bloomington, you know, is. There's diversion programs uh, that are put in place where instead of sending a drug addict uh, or a mentally ill person to prison here, they're put into special programs that they abide by the terms and conditions here. They don't uh, ruin their life through a criminal conviction here. That's a judge using their inherent authority uh, and their creativity to solve uh, you know, real problems. And the, the judges don't get credit for actually uh, doing that, but they see these patterns again and again and again. What can I do to change this? And so these kind of, these, uh, oh, there's a special name for it. Uh, Problem-solving courts is what they're called uh, kind of in the literature. But that's basically, they're stepping into the breach and using their authority at the county level to get those up and running with some funding from the uh, state. But that's operated within the purview of the actual, you know, court system. The idea, say, creating like an online dispute resolution system here, that wouldn't occur to a judge because it's too far afield from what they do here. They have to conceptualize an entire new way of solving problems that doesn't have lawyers at all. And, and maybe doesn't even have judges because the stakes are smaller. 
And so that there's um, the judges do, I think, a nice job with these uh, problem solving courts here. But, the, you know, we probably need regulatory agencies that are well funded, that do fact gathering, that have special expertise. Say, how do we provide as much justice as possible to this population of uh, people, which means probably you know, engineering lawyers out of these lower stakes cases. If if a case is worth $4,000 here, we can't pay two lawyers on both sides to write pleadings. We just need a, a new system entirely for resolving those disputes. And so only the judges have the authority to conceive of something different, but it's a huge lift. Right, right. And it may even predate them becoming judges. You know, obviously yeah. a law professor near and dear to your heart, you... I think you pose, I don't know if you do this every year or certain years, you pose a question to your students. You present case studies about legal advertising, the one that I'm referring to specifically here. And you run it down and explain how and why uh, certain law firms failed because it was volume work. They didn't have the people or the money to get the volume work done. And then you pose the question to students, you know, what if alternative ways of doing this, more business-focused ways of doing this legal work were permitted? Would you be in favor of that? And you say... More times than not, majority of your students want the status quo. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. You bring up the story, I, a case that I used at the end of my first year legal professions class on the failed storefront revolution. And this is a Cleveland, Ohio story here. Is uh, Joel Hyatt's a Yale Law School graduate, goes to work for a prestigious Wall Street firm, decides it's not for him, that he wants to do people law justice here. So Howard Metzenbaum's his father-in-law. So his father-in-law helps him underwrite, moves back to Cleveland where Howard's daughter is. And they, from there, launch a Hyatt Legal Services, which was basically brought about through the storefront justice, but it's made possible by the First Amendment ruling in Bates versus Arizona that you can have lawyer advertising. So Joel Hyatt's this very telegenic kid, uh, gets on the uh, TV and advertises Hyatt Legal Services. You can get uh, uh, ordinary justice at an affordable price. And uh, Jacoby Myers is doing the same thing on the West Coast. And that's a storefront aspect. Yeah, you, yeah. Go, you go down to Main Street, yeah. there it is. You walk in, you, yeah. get, you get a lawyer. And in the early days of the NLJ 200 and the American lawyer, uh, Jacoby and Meyer and high legal services are on the league tables, even though they're doing people law. Uh, but ultimately, they come to a crash around 1991, 1992. Why? Because they had uh, lawyers, because the, the the regulatory rules, the only person that could interface with the lawyer, these people are coming in to get their wills and estates taken care of here. And the person that has to do the sale is lawyers. It's repetitive work. And so I do the intake. I find out if Mrs. Smith needs a will here. If it's one of the cookie cutters, uh, things that we have in our template driven approach in the back here, I take the intake sheet, I take a crayon, I circle a few things here, I hand it to the paralegal uh, and they generate the form uh, document. It's terrible, soul-crushing work for the lawyers, but under the unauthorized practice of law, only they could provide the advice, quote-unquote, to Mrs. Smith that's coming in. And what was really interesting about the failed storefront revolution is it failed because the lawyers didn't want to do the work, and so it became a very risky business to kind of expand. But you know who loved doing work? is the secretaries and the paralegals, because they knew that getting Mrs. Smith a goodwill for 200 bucks was a great deal for Mrs. Smith, and they loved doing that work because they knew they were solving a problem in a kind of a, a commodity-driven way. So I asked my students, I said, hey, look, you know, why don't we change the rules so that these uh, secretaries and paralegals can help Mrs. Smith get her will for 200 bucks here? I said, no, you know, they don't want the job. They wouldn't want the job at Hyatt Legal Services doing that soul-crushing work, but they're not willing to change the rules. That was the end of my uh, discussion in class for, I don't know, probably five or six uh, years. But in the last few years, more and more students have said, no, we don't want to do the work here. What's it going to take to help Mrs. Smith get a better 
and without me priming, the student attitudes are changing here. So it's so you think they're more amenable to yes. different processes, letting allied professionals do what historically might have been considered legal work, but may yeah. not be. It might be a repetitive yeah. business process. Yeah, and and so uh, these attitudes may eventually lead to eventually kind of a half a generation from now kind of liberalization where you can properly capitalize a high at legal service. I mean, this is really what LegalZoom would like to do in Arizona is employ lawyers to do the lawyer stuff, you know, top of your license type stuff here. But in the meantime, you know, uh, you know, crank out high quality, kind of more standardized stuff here to consumers at affordable, you know, prices. But that requires the process people and the advertising people, and the finance people to basically be able to co-venture with lawyers. It's a sophisticated, you know, business. And so, you know, you know, Arizona's opened the door. So LegalZoom's now in APS and Arizona, it's going to do probably something in, in Utah. I mean, that's the way to provision legal services to people is you have to have a scalable business. A little harder question going back to regulation and the rules of, against advertising and uh, have lawyers do legal work. You know, a few years ago, I was at a, an annual event in, held by the Illinois State Bar Association, and the issue came up. It was Washington at the time. Remember, Washington was permitting, was it, was it, it was a triple LTs? Yeah. Licensed was, legal. Yeah, triple LTs. And they were permitted to do work around, uh, was it wills or was it domestic work? Yeah, it's probably family law stuff. Yeah, family law stuff. A good chunk of the lawyers there were all up in arms about this. You know, this is they're taking work away from us and stuff. But the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you're not doing this work anyways. You don't want to do this work. So what, what is this complaint really? So how do we address that? Or I guess maybe maybe I'm thinking about some of your other theories. You equated um, legal tech companies and legal industry yeah. to uh, the auto industry. There's a great article you wrote about that. But one of the things I think is in that article, you point out that a lot of times change is just dying off of the old guard. Yeah. So is that what it's going to take, generational change? To- yeah, I think this is Max Planck's principle. Uh, the truth never prevails. Its critics just die out. Science <laughs> advances one funeral at a time. That's the paraphrase, <laughs> you know, of it. And I've asked the question, well, does that apply to a paradigm shift in law? And, and I've, I've concluded that I, I really think it, it does because uh, and there's other variants of that. Uh, Herman Kahn, uh, the great military theorist, talked about educated incapacity, you know, we're so expert in one paradigm that we can't see the possibilities of another paradigm. So the the next generation that gets schooled in the new paradigm can see the possibilities. We're, we're so well educated that it puts us blinders on to new possibilities. And this is this is just a well documented psychological phenomenon. Another thing I found interesting too is you pointed out uh, there was a study I believe it was in uh, maybe it was Europe client satisfaction with legal services done by those who are not lawyers was just the same if not. Better than, than, yeah. than when they had the legal work done by lawyers. This is Becky Sandifer's work uh, based in the UK. She's citing research from the UK. She's, she's pulled together a lot of this data. Becky Sandifer, MacArthur genius sociologist at Arizona State uh, University. And, uh, and she's done a ton of access to justice type work here. But she points out to say, look, the data is pretty overwhelming. Uh, that, uh, that is overwhelming that legal specialists that, that stop short of getting a law degree uh, they're just practicing in their area of domain expertise here from a client point of view and a malpractice point of view, perform just as well. You point out, too, that we trust our health to people that aren't doctors. I mean, a good chunk of the medical help well, we get is from people that aren't our MDs. So that's where my research is going now. I've done some research and a lot more, hopefully, over the next couple of years here. 1960s nurse practitioners are vehemently being pushed back by the American Medical Association. You know, fast forward 50 years here. You know, they handle a, a nice tranche of work here, and only one out of every 10 healthcare workers that 
provides direct services to patients in our healthcare system have either an MD or a DO. Another 10% have some other graduate degree, but 80% of the people have a bachelor's degree or, or below. And the whole credentialing system has grown up around this. And, and we need to liberate the legal industry so that uh, we can create enterprises that push work down to well-qualified, well-trained, lower-cost professionals. You know, kind of like the secretaries and the paralegals at high legal services. They were good at it and they enjoy doing it and they don't cost as much as a lawyer. So why aren't they doing it? They should be doing it. You also have a theory too that you've come out with that the legal industry is on autopilot. All this stuff we've talked about, we're on autopilot and we're kind of ignoring or not paying enough attention to this problem with people law. Explain that. Explain what you mean by autopilot. We don't have an activist regulator. I mean, we sometimes think it's the bar associations, but it's not the bar associations. The bar associations are consulted by the Supreme Courts for their expertise and for their special guidance, and they've just got more bandwidth. And so they consult with the uh, bar association. The bar associations tend to be parochial and self-interested. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's the state Supreme Courts that have an inherent authority to regulate the profession, and they can blow up the system and create a new one. The, the problem is, is that their entire careers, so the socialization of a, a of a judge, it kind of cuts against the idea of kind of blowing up a just one regulatory regime so you could create a, you know, a new one. They lack the time and the expertise. And also, they'd have to work with the legislature to get the budget to do it. So this is just a very improbable that the profession is going to do it. So in the meantime, since these rules are slow to change, we're largely on autopilot, even though we see clear evidence that the people law sphere is really in decline here. I mean, when three out of every four uh, people in state court are self-representatives, like, how much worse does it need to get? before we do something, you know, about it. But the problem is too big to kind of step back, too big for the judges, I think, to step back and just say, we've got to start at first principles. Now, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, IELTS, in Denver, is taking up this challenge here. And they're trying to, for the very able leadership, uh, getting, pulling together the state Supreme Court justices to realize that it's really up to that group of folks to use their regulatory authority and kind of pool their knowledge. And the best analog to this is the American Law Institute. The common law was a chaotic mess in the early 20th century. It was impossible to know uh, what the legal principle was in Illinois versus New Jersey versus Texas, because uh, you'd have to locate the precise language and line it up here. And it was an impossible task for a lawyer. And so uh, the founders of the American Law Institute, you know, I've written about this on legal evolution, I think it's post 207, it tells the story of getting funding from the Carnegie Foundation to restate the law. There was this idea in the UK that we should restate the common law so we have clear delineations of really what these legal principles are. This is where the term black letter law comes from. We synthesize all these cases. We state the unifying principle is in black letter law, and then we annotate it with illustrations and commentary. And that act of restating the law saved the legal profession and, and that enabled American law schools to exist because you can go to school in Hawaii and you could sit for the bar in New Jersey. Why? Because we're knitted together by the common law through the restatements. And so uh, that legal infrastructure was hugely valuable. And we need to, have to do something akin to that for uh, court simplification. Not a perfect analog, but isn't that a really early use case of one to many? Yes. Absolutely. Chad, you are a great student. You did a lot of preparation <laughs> for that because that's that, that standardization. That, that is an early example. You know, Richard Susskind talks about bespoke, 
standardized, systematized, productized, and uh, commoditized. And everybody's afraid uh, commoditized is free over the internet. But you are standardizing the common law by reading all these cases and just say, you don't need to read these 10 cases or these 100 cases here. Read this black letter this segment of the restatement, and it's going to cite to these cases in a footnote, uh, but it allows us to have a lingua franca to talk about these principles and to be basically counsel clients with some degree of greater certainty. Because the judges would reach for the restatement, you know, in order to deal with cases of first impression. The one-to-many opportunity is not just to benefit people all too. I mean, there's a real opportunity in, in corporate America too. Absolutely. And actually one to many has taken off more in the lawyer to lawyer uh, space. Why? Because businesses don't have the uh, ability to kind of like, uh, people can just say, it's too expensive. I'm not going to file the case. I'm not going to consult the lawyer. I give up. But a corporation can't do that. It has to stay in compliance. And so if you're doing business in a hundred different countries, you can't be uh, you know solving your legal work with Word documents and email attachments and Excel spreadsheets. You need data process and technology to make this transparent. And so a lot of the innovation is through the legal operations movement or, you know, kind of like the the legal value network, which has brought in the kind of the supply side of this equation here, the pricing people, the innovation, you know, folks here. They're they're, they're all speaking the same language as the legal operations folks on the client side. So there's huge amounts of one to many that's taking place in the in the lawyer to lawyer space or organizational client space. I'm going to ask you what each of these players can do to start moving the needle in the right direction. Schools. What should schools do? Law schools. The first thing. We need to pool our resources uh, better to drop down the total cost of, uh, of legal education. We need to do some one-to-many for faculty allocation. And the other thing you pointed out, too, is the curriculum changed a little bit, too. and Don't have it so focused on law, bringing other aspects. The stuff I did for the Institute for the Future... Of, uh, of law practice. The whole one-to-many stuff is we believe is basically, I believe is basically one or two law school classes because data process, technology, design, business things are 300 level undergraduate uh, disciplines. But if you've never had them, you're going into the practice of law and you know nothing about technology, you know nothing about a process, you know nothing about uh, business principles or cost accounting here. We can backfill that gap here, but why should a law school hire somebody to teach this? Why don't we just do it in one centralized place here and we disperse this kind of better way of teaching, maybe do it asynchronously through certification programs, and that would drop down the cost of this kind of catching up of the legal education, catching up to the one-to-many way here. And instead of hiring 200 faculty and we all work autonomously, you know, have it centralized in something like the American Law Institute, you know, uh, and, and centralize it and then distribute it at a low cost and a high quality way to all law schools. So law schools need to collaborate because us competing against one another in a world where prestige is the most important thing will be a disaster for students. The students will suffer because they'll get less good education at a higher cost. So courts, you've already talked about it at length, but is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. The courts is use a regulatory authority and their position better, right? Get together at the IELTS meetings here and really commit to a course of action where they're going to learn from Utah and Arizona and solve this completely untenable situation of having people having to navigate the courts as self-represented litigants. That's just terrible. Law firms, what should they be doing? And I'm not talking about those representing clients and people. What should the AMLAW 200, what should they be doing? What can they be doing to help fix this problem? Realize that there's going to come a day where allied professionals are going to be more important than the rainmakers. And then finally, 
I think this is not often talked about. And I have a theory, what I would say, but clients, what can clients do? Well, if it's people versus organizational clients, I think that the uh, if it's organizational clients, take the, the, the long view and learn from the Japanese Kazan supply chain principles. Uh, when you're constantly rate cutting uh, your firm and saying, don't put first years on your matters here, you're really setting up a sweating dynamic where you're going to underfund the next generation of, of professionals. We should be having programs where we onboard uh, young people, we give them good training, and we share the risk and the cost between the client and the law firm and the law schools. We should de-risk uh, educational training by taking the longer view and getting very Kazan about our uh, talent supply chain. Bill, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. This is a very engaging conversation. If people want to learn more about Legal Evolution, your background, find your writing, where do they go? www.legalevolution.org. All right, that's all we got today for Technically Legal. I appreciate listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us pretty much everywhere you get podcasts. If you want to get a hold of me with ideas for guests or learn more about my company, Percipient, you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. You can also find me on Twitter, chat underscore main, or on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening, and this has been Technically Legal.